Welcome to What's Eric Eating, Culture Map's weekly look at all things Houston bars and restaurants. I'm your host, Culture Map food editor Eric Sandler. I have Pace Webb from Daddy's Chicken Shack coming up in a little bit. But first, we want to do something a little bit different to kick off the show this week. I want to spend a few minutes paying tribute to Lee Ellis, the seminal figure in Houston's culinary scene. Lee died last week at the age of 63. People may recognize him from any number of bars and restaurants that he was involved with over the years, from Belvedere, The Social, and Tonic, to restaurants like BRC, Liberty Kitchen, State Fair, Starfish, Lee's Chicken and Donuts, and Pie Pizza. I am joined this week by two of my co-hosts who both knew Lee First up, he is a co-founder of the Houston Barbecue Festival and a Houston hospitality veteran. Michael Fulmer, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. He is a passionate advocate for the Houston food scene. Matt Harris, welcome to the show. Thanks, Daddy. Glad to be here. Michael, I want to start with you because you actually worked with Lee, for Lee, however you want to say it, uh, back in the day. And so I you know, you posted a tribute to Lee on your on your Instagram page. What will you remember about Lee Ellis? Wow. Um, as I said in my post, like Lee was a lot of things to a lot of people. Uh, I mean, he was a very dynamic character. Um, and he was a person with like great. He had big ideas. He had big ambition. You know, what's the line from Butch Cassidy? Boy, I got vision. And the rest of the world wears bifocals. You know, that was kind of Lee, you know, he was always like looking years, years ahead. Um, uh, he had an incredible sense of aesthetic uh, and he went into environments and businesses and uh, dynamics that he didn't initially have even an experience on. And he was like very, he was always very motivated and um, ambitious in terms of learning it, mastering it and moving on. He was, you know, the old saying, like a shark, you know, just if you're a shark and you're just staying still, then you're just going to die. He was always moving forward. Matt, let me bring you in on this. I mean, I know you got to know Lee through some of his restaurants. What, what's your maybe uh, overriding memory of, of his place in the dining scene? Uh, you know, I think uh, a few things, terms that are sort of thrown around a little too liberally in my humble opinion, this is not one of those times, you know, Lee was kind of an OG in the food and beverage industry in Houston and superlatives aside, I I don't think it's unfair to say he was one of a kind. I would agree with that. And, And kind of to your point about him being able to see trends ahead of other people or to, or to have a vision before they they became popular. I mean, I think about, you know, BRC, you know, kind of did the the fancy comfort food thing, the the gourmet burger thing, maybe ahead of a lot of other people. You know, Liberty Kitchen again, that kind of Gulf Coast seafood working with Chef Lance Fegan on both of those projects and and then, you know, really kind of kind of going off from from those business partners and and joining Cherry Pie Hospitality and and you know, making that into a force on the, on the restaurant scene. I mean, state fair for, 
you know, maybe that first year or so when they opened it and he was kind of running it uh, with Jim Mills, that was, I mean, one of my absolute favorite restaurants. You know, we would go there all the time. Uh, and it was the, outside the loop. <laughs> yeah, even, even though even though it meant driving all the way to Gester and I-10, which is not, right. it's not very far away. But but that chicken fried steak and the pickle dip and, you know, there'd always be something new to try. They were working on a pork shop. They were working on a steak. They were working on some new dip, you know, those giant pancakes, the chicken and waffles, all that stuff. And, and then when they opened Starfish and, and it had that West Coast influence with, you know, dishes like the the garlic noodles and and the poke and and that whole just that extensive raw bar program you know they were they were exciting restaurants and and you know the the partnership didn't didn't ultimately work out and and Lee kind of left Houston and and semi retired to uh to Round Top where he you know got got right back in the restaurant business opened Ellis Motel a, a bar and lounge and got into the barbecue business which had long been an aspiration of his so you know, but but there was that period from, you know, roughly 2008, 2009 when BRC opened until about the middle of 2018, where, I mean, he was a prominent, very active presence in the in the restaurant world and, and deserves a lot of credit for for some of the trends that we're still living with today, I think. Yeah, I, th- I think he had a real, you know, and his commitment to excellence was really I mean, that's something I saw working for him. And later on, just talking with him about things he was doing. I mean, you know, you and I remember going to Petite Suites, you know, the Susan Mulzan's operation on West Alabama, which is uh, unfortunately closed now. But when they got into ice cream and he was tasting ice cream, he's like, well, this is the vanilla. He's like, we're going to use two, three, four times as much vanilla as like normal is. Like, I want that vanilla, that flavor to punch, you know. He wanted that just to stand out. And his his sense of taste in terms of visual as well as taste, you know, as well as what you were eating, you know, all reflected that kind of uh, uh, intensity, if you will. I I saw when he opened bars, you know, he couldn't find the right, you know, bar, the right flat top for a bar. He was opening on Washington, a place called the social, he ended up going to St. Louis and that's where he found the bar that he wanted and had it shipped down. He couldn't find the furniture here that he wanted. You know, he went to New York and got that. You know, it, it, it wasn't like I'm going to settle and go, well, I couldn't find it here at this price. I'm going to go get it there and make it work. Now, he was also a workaholic. The thing about working for a workaholic is you're going to work a lot, you know. And to say Lee was a, a somewhat polarizing figure also on the scene is absolutely true. Right, know, right. I mean, I'm this is funny. the man who very famously banned Allison Cook from Liberty Kitchen, right? They put a, <laughs> right. you know, right. instead of no smoking, the, 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 it was no Allison Cook, and right. and they, but he wasn't afraid of that kind of controversy. You know, he liked to stir the pot a little bit. He liked to mix it up, but that just that was just part of his charm. You know that that he was just so outspoken that he he'd tell you what he was thinking. Agreed. Yeah, I think that 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 uh, uh, the thing that sticks with me is there wasn't a filter with Lee, and that's uh, I'll make a judgment if that's good, bad, right, wrong, whatever. But uh, I will say that on some level, I find that refreshing. I agree. And, and there was a period of time when, when we were eating with him, maybe quarterly, you know, we'd all go out to dinner or lunch or something and kind of catch up. And, and he was fun to eat with because he was very, he, he had very strong opinions about, you know, every dish that hit the table, good or bad. 
and a very, very sharp culinary mind and a very good palate. And he could break down what was going on in a dish. And, and I remember going with him to Riel right around the time Riel opened for one of my first meals there and him being almost as excited about it as I was. And it kind of, kind of validated my impression that like, you know, this is a special place. They're, they're really honest up in there. And, and the other thing too, I think is it, it was also a two-way street. He also wanted to hear what you thought he was, you know, had a very curious mind, constantly asking you questions. And that, that again, is uh, something I find refreshing. All right, Michael, uh, you you interacted with him some once he he moved on to Round Top. I just uh, I, I guess I'm going to give you kind of the final the final word here, and and then we'll we'll move on. Um, okay, I guess like I'd leave with like a, one little story, maybe. I mean, some of them aren't really proper for this forum, but I mean, what I can remember is is we had a Christmas party. And, you know, we're, this is definitely an era where at least certainly in Texas, it's been my experience that most, a lot of restaurants, a lot of bars, a lot of hospitality places don't do, you know, this is very few benefits. Like there's not Christmas parties anymore. Everyone's worried about liability. And Lee took the whole crew. We went to the ready room down South and, you know, we were just totally set up. We had the band. We just had a great time. And, you know, I think it's like a Sunday night and the band is like, okay, we're, we're, we're wrapping up now. It's getting close to midnight. And Lee just walks up. He doesn't like take him aside and talk to them or anything. He just starts peeling off money onto the ground, hundred dollar bills in front of him. You know, and, the, and the guy gets back on the microphone and goes, we're going to keep playing, you know? And uh, <laughs> that was kind of, that was kind of Lee, you know, bigger than life, you know, just cut right to the chase and, you know, we're all going to have a good time and that's the way it's going to be. All right. Well, Michael, thank you uh, for participating in this. Matt and I are going to continue with the news of the week, but you know, it just felt, you know, he was he was too important a figure in 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 Houston food not to spend a couple of minutes remembering Lee Ellis. So, so thank you both for that, Matt. Let's dive into the rest of the news of the week. We'll we'll just do a couple of topics. Let's start with topic number one. The big news is that. Hobby Airport has a new concessions contract. Areas, a Spain-based company with operations in 10 other U.S. airports, is replacing Pappas Restaurants, which has operated Hobby for about 20 years. The new deal means restaurants like Papacitos and Papado are leaving Hobby, and they will be replaced by places like Hillen's Barbecue and Galveston's The Spot. There's a lot of back and forth in the debate about between the city and, and Pappas about the bid process and, and what that all means. But, but ultimately uh, what it came down to is that areas bid had the highest score in the scoring process because they're giving a higher percentage of the revenue to the city than Pappas promised. So that's that it, as, as usual with these things, it comes down to, to money but but Matt, let me just throw it to you. I mean, do you have an opinion about city council replacing a, a locally owned business running the airport concessions with an international firm? I mean, it's, you know, the devil's in the details, right? So I, I don't know necessarily if it's, uh, if the deal is better for the city or not. Maybe that will reveal itself in time. 
Uh, I will say, you know, I mean, Papa's restaurant group is something that uh, I, I've always enjoyed, you know, having Papacitos there at Hobby is probably one of my few go-tos at, at an airport. But, you know, that aside, they also have a long history with Houston, which which I'm definitely sensitive to. It just is, I'm not really sure. And, and I think that's fair. And, and I think what you said is true for a lot of people. You know, if they were, if they had an early morning flight out of hobby, you know, they knew that they could get a couple of, a couple of breakfast tacos or, you know, if you were there maybe a little later in the afternoon or you got like a held up, I'd see any number of people sucking down those purple swamp things, that frozen cocktail, uh, that'll take the edge off of, uh, the stress of a delayed flight. And and I think they serve the airport well. And, and I think, you know, people are obviously there's there's a group of people who are obviously, you know, we don't we don't we as as sort of the civilians in this don't don't have all the details of the the procedures of the city scoring process and how it was evaluated. You know, I will say that the council voted eleven to six in favor of areas. So it's not like it was particularly yeah. close. And, and on some level, I, you know, we sort of have to trust that our elected representatives have the city's best interest at heart and that there's not something more nefarious going on behind the scenes. I will say I, I, I did I did talk to Ronnie Killen for a few minutes about kind of what he's got planned for that airport location. And he is really excited. And and certainly being kind of based in Pearland, PC's hobby is kind of catering to to his area. And so, you know, I think you're going to see a lot from Killen's Barbecue, certainly breakfast tacos in the morning, certainly, you know, sandwiches at lunch. You know, it'll be a lot like kind of what they do at the at the football stadium and the baseball stadium. And he said that the contract has all these provisions in it. Areas has to meet his standards. It's got to use the equipment that he approves of, and he's going to give them the procedures, and he has enforcement provisions to make sure they're they're doing it right. So, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to say, you know, sight unseen or, or meat untasted that it's going to taste exactly like Killen's barbecue in Pearland, but I think it's going to be damn close. And for visitors, certainly if, if they're, again, if you're in hobby on a layover, you're going to get a pretty, a pretty solid bite of Texas barbecue, I think from, from that restaurant. And, and from, from that perspective, you know, I think it's an exciting addition. I think there's two things, right? There, it's not mutually exclusive. Like, certainly happy for for Ronnie and 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 Killens, and probably will find myself patronizing when I fly out a hobby. But the other, you know, if if again, if the the contracts were were close, you know, I, I don't know. It, 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 it's it's just hard to say. I, it's... Yeah, I, I think there's a certain perspective of change is good, right? Pappas had a good run, a good 20 years, and let's see how someone else does. I, I think there's and and there's a separate contract that was awarded in January that's bringing in you know dish society and common bond and a whole bunch of other stuff. So the the food mix in the airport is is changing, no matter what, and and I think this is part of that, and and. I mean, yeah, we'll I just, I just like to, uh, I just like to to have a little more clarity on 
are we are we talking apples to apples? Is it apples to oranges? You know, if you're going to make a change, to me, it needs to be a little more than you know compelling. So again, I, I don't know, but I but I think that you can still question the the contract and also be excited for who's coming in. Right. I I think the bidding process and and that's completely separate from like what, what areas did to win that bid versus Pappas is completely separate from what Ronnie's going to do now that the bid has been decided and Killens is coming to the airport. Right. Like Correct. he didn't setting up the provisions of the bid and, and submitting it to the city isn't, isn't his role in the world. So I don't want to pin him with that. Uh, but, Not at all. But, but now that he's, but now that he's part, now that he's involved, it's going to have his standards. And, and I think he's proven at, at the sports stadiums around town that, that he can really deliver in that environment in a, in a concession style environment. And so the decision has been made. It, it has nothing to do with me. And, and now that it has been made, like I'm looking forward to Killen's barbecue sandwiches at hobby airport. Well, and I, I also think this is just a harbinger of the way that we fly is going to change dramatically over the next 10 years. What do you mean? Uh, well, I mean, you can see some of what they're doing, uh, the construction that they're doing at Intercontinental now, and, and you see it in, in some of the larger um, international airports. It's It's going to be much more of an experience where your your dining options, your beverage options, the way that you basically approach flying in general, I think it's going to change. Yeah, I think the days of boring chain restaurants being the only options in, in an environment like an airport are, are over. And people expect a higher level of service and, and a higher level of quality. And the people who run airports are sensitive to that. And and this is part of that trend. And and I think that's all to the good. Yes. I, I think it, I, I, I think it's more, more complicated nuance than that, but yes. All right. Well, uh, I, I get the sense you want to move on. So let's do topic number two. Uh, very briefly. I did want to note that craftsman cafe has closed in the Heights. The Craftsman Bakery, the commercial, the commercial bakery will maintain a, a retail presence up there until the bakery itself relocates to somewhere in East Downtown. Timeline's a little fuzzy, maybe this summer, maybe this fall. It all it all depends a little bit on on when everything's ready for the move, because they have, you know, hundreds of commercial bakery customers all over. Uh, Houston and Austin and Galveston that are counting on them, so they're not gonna they're not gonna move until until the new facility is ready. But but Matt, I just wanted to throw it to you just in case you had any thoughts on Craftsman Cafe. You know, there was that original location on on Montrose, and and then they moved up to the Heights after Textile closed, the legendary Tasty Menu restaurant. So uh, I just I just wanted to know if you had any fond memories of Craftsman Cafe now that it's ceased its serving food to people uh i mean yes you know but that montrose location that that was that was in the neighborhood and and when it was there it was certainly on rotation and you know it's uh 
it's interesting to, to look back and, you know, at the time it's like, uh, your, your options were, were much fewer for quality pastries and, and coffee. So fair number of, of, uh, mornings, both weekday and, and weekends at the craftsman, uh, anecdotally, I'll add, I spent my 40th birthday at textile. You know, when I had Seth Siegel Gardner on the show a few weeks ago, you know, it was sort of hard to remember what were the restaurants before that were kind of leading the way before Chris Shepard, Justin Yu, Seth and Terrence kind of took over and, you know, really just grabbed the city and shook everything up. And, and, but one of those people was Scott Tyser, uh, sure. you know, at, at, at areas and gravitas and textile and even craftsman cafe kind of set a real standard and, and help pave the way for kind of where we are. And so it does, it does seem worth acknowledging that, uh, you know, this little bakery was kind of the predecessor to places like Common Bond or Cafeteria or uh, some of these others that have popped up over the years. And, and you know, maybe maybe kid kind of slipped off the media radar, but but very much beloved in the Heights still and and place that I think a lot of people are going to miss. Yes, sir. Yeah, you actually uh, brought back memories of, of uh, another precursor, Laidback Manor. Randy Rucker. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That, that would be a fun, that would be a fun podcast to kind of round up all the people that worked at Laidback Manor and, and talk about that place. Uh, I, I have to admit, I never ate there. So that's, uh, I, that's one that I missed. I, I spent my 35th birthday there. <laughs> all right. You know what? I'm going to say that does it for the news of the week. We'll be right back with our restaurant of the week. Stick around. For our restaurant of the week, I want to bring Michael Fulmer back into the conversation because we are going to talk about June. This is Evelyn Garcia and Henry Liu's new modern Asian American restaurant in the Heights. Matt, you and I went to June together. Michael, I know you've been separately. Uh, Matt, let me let me start with you. I mean, what what are kind of what are kind of your initial thoughts about about June? Uh, love it. Why do you love it? I love everything about it. <laughs> Would you like to be more specific? <laughs> <laughs> What's We've one specific right? thing that you love about it, Matt? We've met, right? <laughs> well, I, I think they've, they have, uh, Evelyn and Henry and their team have created something pretty special. I know it's early. But uh, it just starts from the minute you walk in the door. The The space is beautiful. Another stunning concept from Gin Design Group. Open kitchen, really just well-apportioned details. Just very well done. Love the aesthetic. I mean, I agree with you. I mean, you would never know that that space had been a popsicle store you know that it was steel city pops for a hot minute and then you know a co-op selling grocery items but it benefits from that kind of industrial 
history. It's got the high ceilings. It's got the big windows, you know, so it feels very open. It feels bright and airy. And, you know, you walk in and there's a the little bar and then the, the kitchen's glassed in. So you see everything that's going on in there with Evelyn leading the team and Henry working the front of house. No, I mean, it, it, it feels good in there. Michael, Michael, how about you? What were your kind of first impressions when you, you walked into June? Oh yeah, it's definitely a uh, a beautiful space, you know. And having the kitchen with that right behind that glass, the bar right there, it's really comfortable. It really reflects, you know. Very, they've made really specific choices, you know, from the flatware to the cups you drink your coffee with, which are earthenware. They just it feels so personal. You know, I'll be honest with you, at the risk of just really overstating this, I had a visceral reaction to this place. I mean, it was it was outstanding. And I haven't had that kind of emotive, you know, response in quite a while, maybe since like Street to Kitchen, where you see someone's vision of of who they are reflected in everything there. You see the passion, you see the hard work and you see the talent. Uh, And this is not just reflected in the food, but in the entire environment around it. I was impressed with the service. Um, Our waiter didn't just, you know, she didn't just kind of like, okay, this is what we have, or I like this. She was able to talk intelligently about every dish. You know, seeing Evelyn actually on the floor that day, it was a Sunday and she was not on the line, meant she was this, in the first month, she was comfortable with having her team run the kitchen while she's on the floor. That's, you know, in the first month, that's, you know, almost unheard of, you know, that shows great a great teamwork vibe that's going on there. And as far as the food, man, it was just everything we had was outstanding. Uh, And getting to hear stories about how, you know, some of the things came from her hometown. You know, we had a whole Branzino that was just, I mean, it was just perfect. Uh, A nice char on it, a little bit of guajillo. We had a squash dish, which had this charred eggplant under it. You just couldn't get enough of it. You know, I didn't sample the whole menu, but I can't wait to go back and try more. Uh, I also thought it was incredibly like intelligent seeing that, you know, getting a liquor license can be very expensive. And so they're just doing beer and wine and they've worked around that beautifully. Uh, you know, uh, to me, like the big high praise that we talk about many times is I, you know, I can't wait to go back. Yeah. You know, I just for for people who sort of watched Evelyn on Top Chef, some of the dishes that she made for the different challenges on the show show up a little bit in, you know, adapted for, for the restaurant, you know, she made a, an aguachile dish for the female heroes of Texas challenge. That was her tribute to Selena, you know, so now there's Gulf shrimp aguachile on the menu. You know, she did the, the curried beef at one point for one of the other challenges. So there's curry lamb now on the menu grits, you know, with carne seca, you know, I know, I know she did that for, you know, a different episode and, and that's on the menu. So, you know, I, I think it's, I I think it's really fun, right? Because, you know, for the most part, you sort of see these, these creations on television and they only exist for the, the day of that challenge, but, but she's included them. And, and, you know, I think, you know, I'm with you in the sense that, that we ate a lot of really delicious stuff. I mean, you know, you think about the, their version of a Caesar is the gem lettuce, but instead of, instead of traditional croutons, which, I know some people feel are are really important. It's cornbread, and so it's it's not sweet at all, but it's it's just a little bit sweeter, and that contrasts with the kind of earthy anchovy and the 
the garlic and the the Caesar dressing. I I just think it's really smart, and and I really felt that way about the whole menu. Matt, how about you? What were what were a couple of your favorite dishes? Certainly, the agua chili is is one that's that's sort of a a binary dish for me. It either is or it isn't. This one is, and I just I enjoy the the playfulness of the menu. The flavors are interesting. There's a lot of layers in those dishes, and uh, I've I've been more than a few times. And it's a brief opening, and it's been very consistent, which is also something that is I tip my hat to. So uh, I think it I think it goes back to what uh, what Daddy was saying is there's a, a continuity and a cohesiveness. And um, that just shows in the whole experience. And so you feel that and it all makes sense. It's, it's very impressive. I'm happy that uh, we have this in Houston. And I think that uh, sky's the limit. Yeah, you know, I, just to build on, on what both of you said, you know, I think what I like best about the food is that I feel like I'm trying things I haven't had before. And, and they're being presented in a way that I haven't seen them before. You know, I've never seen a, a beef tartare with a brunello on top. You know, I know that, you know, again, that the Caesar dressing uses tofu instead of egg, you know, which gives it a slightly different texture. I just, I just think that's, you know, I'm sure they didn't invent that, but, but I can't recall seeing that on another menu around town. You know, again, certainly the curry lamb was a big standout, the, the fried chicken that's marinated in the, the shrimp paste gives it a little extra umami. I just think what they're doing is really smart. And and I agree with you that it's, that it's an exciting place to eat right now. And, and, you know, really one of the best new restaurants in terms of having a perspective, right? In terms of, you know, showing me something a little different. You know, one of the best new restaurants I can remember trying in the past uh, couple of years. And what's even more exciting about it is that you really even having gotten to know Evelyn, you know, from her food at, at Decatur bar where she was doing kind of more Thai food and, and what she and Henry have been doing at the, the farmer's markets kind of with, you know, more casual breakfast fare. It's like, you know, nothing about those previous experiences really prepare you for, for what they've got going on at June. And, and I just, I think it's exciting and it's, it's nice to see two relatively young chefs evolving really fast. And, and this is kind of who they are and, and, you know, I I wouldn't be surprised to start seeing this pop up on, you know, national, regional type best new restaurant list just because she's got that profile now after having made it to the finals of Top Chef that people are going to be paying attention to what she does. And, and I think they're going to be very pleased once they have the chance to try it. Yeah, I, just to, to, to kind of piggyback what you said is like some of these are, are very unique and kind of different. But they all seem really well thought out. They don't seem arbitrary at all. Like, I'm going to do a Caesar that, you know, every chef wants to kind of tweak a Caesar so it's a little different, but not go too far away from the norm. But this is like that gem lettuce. It just worked great, you know, with a little bit of lemon for the acid. You know, and we talk about like how a chef can like reflect, the food can reflect who they are and their journey. 
Um, and this just seems to do that for both, you know, her and Henry, you know, the, the time they spent in Asia, their central, you know, her Central American upbringing and there's still her connection to her family and then being based in Houston and everything that that represents. I mean, it, it feels like it's all there. And this is just we're just seeing this at the beginning. Uh, it seems very, I guess part of what impresses me is it seems very refined right now and yet personal. And that's a that's a difficult thread to run and uh they're already there as far as i'm concerned it's, it's so when 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 daddy says hey the sky's the limit you know i i concur thanks daddy all right let me let me just ask you about one last thing because there was a, a bit of a controversy on facebook that the the restaurant assesses a three dollar fee on every table that goes to the kitchen they call it the kitchen tip but but since it's three dollars regardless of whether you spend Ten bucks or or two hundred. I I'm calling it a fee. Do, do you have any any thoughts on on this? I mean, we talked to you know Henry on my way out the door, and and he just said, you know, it allows us to to you know our kitchen staff helps run food, and and it's this allows us to pay them a little bit more. So Matt, I I know you've got a you've got something to say about the the kitchen tip. Yeah, math is hard. <laughs> I mean, you know, people. It's it's uh, Michael Carroll. Can you uh, dub Ryan Lashane's pejorative and just go for about ten seconds for me? That would that would capture my thoughts. And I was like, "What the fuck? Fucking sucks. No fucking way." And I was like, "What the fuck? 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 No, are you kidding me? Fuck?" And I was like, "What the fuck? Fuck? Not a fucking chance." And I was like, "What the fuck? Fuck?" Michael, you work in the service industry. Would you like to see more restaurants adopt something like this to help? Uh, increased wages are, are you comfortable paying this would you take it out of would you take that three dollars out of the the tip that you allocate to the front of house you know that that yacht that i'm saving for that three dollars is going to crush that so i'm out <clears throat> no i'm totally fine with it i mean the laws don't you know allow for you know to share tips and things like that okay understood and you know, the margins are very tight on restaurants. So if they want to add a few dollars to take care of a staff, that's, you know, uh, I think well-deserving of, of getting that, then I have zero problem with it. If you don't like a place that does it, then, you know, you don't have to, 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 to go there, but I, I think it's fine. We're talking $3 here. This is, you know, I'm fine. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Get, get over yourself. That's number one, get over yourself. Number two is, if you don't like it, go open your own restaurant and don't charge a $3 kitchen fee. Otherwise, G-F-Y. <laughs> yeah, I need to, I, you know, you, you referenced cutting in Ryan Lachane. I, I need to cut in the uh, Better Off Dead. I want my $2. I want my $2. I mean, it's it's really it's it's hard enough to run a restaurant. There are so many moving parts, so many challenges. You get it from all sides, and to have someone come in and complain about a three dollar fee in the kitchen, I, I will just say that says a lot more about that person than it does uh, the three dollar fee. But honestly, I, it, it's it's too much, man. It, it, it's the, the, it's a real problem. Like that is, it's unacceptable. It is unacceptable. Somebody, I'm going to stop. All right. Okay. I think that's a good place to leave this. Uh, <laughs> gentlemen, thank you very much. 
uh, that does it for the restaurants of the week. I will be right back with Pace Webb of Daddy's Chicken Shack. Four weeks, 20 papers, that's $2 plus tip. Uh, gee, Johnny, I don't have a dime. Sorry. Didn't ask for a dime. $2. I am joined this week by the founder and CEO of Daddy's Chicken Shack, a restaurant from California with a location in the Heights. Pace Webb, welcome to the show. How are you? Thank you. Thank you, Eric. Glad to glad to be connected with you. Thanks for having me today. Thanks for doing this. Yeah, we we have a mutual friend in common who who sort of nudged me and and said, you, you got to go to daddy's. And then to my detriment, I think I, I sort of blew it off. And then you very uh, graciously reached out and said, Hey, you should really listen to our mutual friend and, and come, come try the chicken sandwiches. And that, that brings us to today, I suppose. Yep. We had a, I, th- I think we had a little love fest a couple weeks ago, Eric, that was a fun afternoon for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a really that, that that was a good conversation and a and a fun lunch, which is why I'm excited to have you here. You know, whenever I I do these interviews, I always kind of like to start at the beginning of a person's career. So, tell me a little bit about kind of how you decided to become a chef. Yeah, what what roads lead to there? It's kind of um it does go way back actually. Um I'm a fourth generation entertainer and that's not something people say often like, well, "What does that mean?" Um, I come from a long line of ladies who love to entertain. So my great grandmother, um, you know, through all kinds of, you know, lavish parties, entertaining for her husband as women did back in the, in the day. Um, and so my grandmother grew up with a lot of, uh, those ideas on entertaining, And she had aspirations of being a fashion designer and she was just extremely artistic um, but then she meets a Texas A&M graduate and elopes with him when she's 19. And they move to Laredo, Texas, where he has his first job um, as a ranch manager. And so she does not become a fashion designer in New York, but applies all of her artfulness to everything she does in her everyday life. I guess you would call her a domestic goddess of sorts, although that sounds way too glamorous for what it must have been like to live on the on a ranch in the 1950s. Yeah, kind of the uh, the, the Martha Stewart of Laredo almost. Okay, there we go. There we go. That's more like it. So like talking about making, you know, everything from scratch cuz the town was 50 miles away, right? And neighbors, there were not a lot of neighbors around. So you had to really be homesteading and very self-sufficient and, you know, she was really into making everything from scratch and being healthy. Um and my mom, you know, grows up with not a lot of, I guess, interaction from other kids and she has a brother, but he's like I'm a boy, I'm doing boy things and she's a you know, she's a girl, she's doing girly things with baby dolls and dress up. And she has this um, character she developed called Miss Rags. Okay. My mom then becomes, um, goes on to become a major, major actress. Um, many of you probably are aware of the Alley Theater and she spent many years there, but um, 
the her father's um AM, you know, people, friends and colleagues gathered around to help making her trip to Royal Academy of Dramatic Arts possible to study over there. And cut to having, you know, growing up in Houston and having all the opening night parties at our house. Um, it was always sort of the place to be, whether we were in a big house or a little house, there was always awesome, like Samba music or disco or Barry White playing. She always had dimmers in every room. So the lighting was great. And it was really more about just bringing people together. Right. And, um, there was always alcohol, um, but it was more just like, you know, cheerful. Right. And there was always, it was never a dark vibe. And then there was always food. So we had like Berry Hill tamales, you know, cater all the time, like picking up food from there. So it was like cheap and cheerful and fun. And I remember this pivotal moment looking around the room and I was like about 14 years old, wanting people to continue connecting, not looking for another beer or stopping their connection to serve themselves a plate. So I just innately was hosting from a very young age like wanting to be on the curating side of the party. But as a 14 year old, that, that's not really a uh, part of the career choices. You can be an astronaut or a chef. <laughs> People don't really push that narrative a lot, rightfully so at a young age. Um, and so in, I went to the high school for performing and visual arts, studying acting, following in my mom's footsteps. And then I had colon cancer when I was 17 and that was like a huge um, awakening experience for me and got me really interested in what I put in my body and what I put on my body. So my journey started like with health and food in that way. And then I went to culinary school and then I went to Italy and Australia and was like picking up what the rest of the world maybe was doing and just really diving in pretty deep to food and wellness. And then um, coming back to landing in California and kind of working a few jobs here and there, trying to figure out what I wanted to do exactly with food. Um, people just kept asking me that I would know to cater this party or that party. And it sort of happened very organically. I wasn't set out to have a catering business. And then it just happened. And I look back and I'm like, oh my gosh, I knew hospitality and I was living it before I knew what it was. And this is how food came to me and the two married together. So I was hosting all these like awesome parties, um, in Los Angeles. And that's how I was able to get my start and, um, make a living, and then the sandwich, you know, it, it's it's interesting. Um, I'm I'm an open book, so I'll I'll be honest. You know, it's sort of how we're able to make a living is by serving people who can afford to eat the food, right? And you're serving like the one to five percent. But I think there's a couple of different schools of chefs, right? One school becomes a chef because they just want to bring people together and feed them really delicious food that they like to eat. And there's another school of chefs that maybe are more technical and more head driven in their approach as a heart driven in their approach. And so I come from that side. And when you are sort of literally catering to um, a certain demographic, it's easy to get lost on what your purpose is as a chef. Right. And um, I I always had plenty of fun doing it. But then we were asked to do this party. They'd this uh, this woman had hired us to do a brunch with our normal, you know, regional Italian by way of California produce, beautiful food. 
And she's like, oh, by the way, we have another event we're just going to get a taco truck for unless you guys do tacos and sliders as well. And I was like, yeah, why not? You know, I'm just like, right. I'm take, sure. take the essentially if someone offers to pay you, you should figure out a way to take their money. Yeah, exactly. I'm like, I may be trying to be ho ho ho, but I'm like, also, also you're a business owner and you want to take the money, right? Um, so I ended up doing that party and I just was like, oh, we'll do a little like pork manchego slider and like some fried chicken with the sriracha mayo, a little Thai style slaw, a little, you know, I didn't R&D anything. I just kind of rocked up there and it was like, yeah. And, um, so funny, Mandy Moore, when she was with Ryan Adams were the first guests to walk into the party. I was like, oh, I, well, I hope this is good. And, you know, um, and so they tweeted about it that night. The fried chicken sandwiches were like the hit of the night. And I was like, what's man? Oh, okay. I guess. Sure. Yeah. Right. So much for my, you know, regionally specific <laughs> pasta course, you know, it's the, it's the dumb fried chicken sandwich that Mandy Moore loved. Yep. That's it. Pop culture, baby. And so it was sort of like a light bulb that night. And it was sort of a joke because like chefs, we just, we love the the torture of it all. We want to work seven days a week and it's like passion and torture at the same time. And it's all, all the things. Um, but it was kind of like, Hey, what if we did one thing and we did it really well, you know? Well, we and, could- and just to be just a little bit more, cause you were, you were sort of explaining, you know, you're serving the sort of the elite, right? The people who could afford to have private events catered in their home, but but you were doing like kind of fine dining style. This wasn't like fajita fajita meat in a steam tray, right? This was like no. this was pretty upscale catering. Yes. Yes. Definitely upscale. And you know, and a ton of fun, but you know, after a while you sort of want to get back to I was relieved when we started daddies because I was like, hey, you know, the, the cycle of giving someone food when you're have a high-end catering business is like nine versions back and forth and a tasting and a this and every little detail. You're like, man, just, just eat the food. It's going to be really good. I promise, you know, <laughs> but you can't really say those things. Right. So I was so um, refreshed when it was like, just somebody walks up and they want a sandwich and I'm going to give you a delicious sandwich. And I hope that your day is better because of it. You know, it's like, oh, what a relief. You know, right, so so just be so just be a little bit more explicit. So you know, obviously, you get a you get a boost from the interest in the chicken sandwich because of the celebrity thing. But like, yeah, how did you make that leap to go? Okay, the the catering thing is cool, but like, I really want to lean into the chicken sandwich. Yeah, so uh, it was it was kind of a cute little story. The next day, um, I called my dad after the celebrity party and this sort of idea to maybe lean into the chicken sandwich world a little bit more. I said, Dad you know, you're not going to believe what happened last night. Mandy Moore ate the sandwich and we think we should lean into a fried chicken sandwich and forget all this fine dining fuss. And I said, it could be your retirement plan. You can be on the Venice pier frying chicken, flirting with the ladies in a Hawaiian shirt, and we'll call it daddy's. And he had one of those (laughs) daddy belly laughs. And I was like, Ooh, daddy's chicken shack. And it was literally a light bulb moment. I was like, that sounds really good. So I got together with another chef friend of mine. I was like, hey, what is it like to open a brick and mortar? What do I need? Where should I go? And all these things. And he showed me a business plan. And I was like, okay, well, that's like a whole other ball game. Um, I don't know if I have the right partners right now for that. So let me just keep making this, you know, keep the dream alive, put it on, you know, let's simmer the dream, right? Because timing is everything. 
and we'll just keep making the sandwich. And it, we made it since 2013 on our catering menu. And we had time to, you know, fuss with it, try it with thigh meat, try it with, you know, a little bit of this, a little bit of that nuances. Um, and then I met my now husband and business partner and he's like, this is your Shake Shack. Taste of Pace is your 11 Madison Park. This is your Shake Shack and how you can reach people on a broader way and scale this. He's like, let's lean into this. And I was like, okay, so here's my partner, right? Um, so we just sort of started popping up at a market um, every Sunday, grinding it out for like, you know, it's a pretty early rise and a pretty late um, finish when you do a, a food market like that, 60 vendors that got like 10,000 people on a Sunday. And so between 60 vendors, you maybe do like 150 to 200 covers in a six hour period. So it's nice to, you know, it's a three person system under a tent and figuring, you know, just kind of figuring it out real organically. And then Chris got, um, he, he was sort of getting the itch to get a brick and mortar space. He's like, let's just see, you know, what's out there. So I moved my catering business in the back of this little walk-up window in um, Pasadena, California. And um, and we put a little sign for daddies in the front. We had four, four two tops on a sidewalk and a little 100 square foot, you know, front of front of house. And like when, when people would come in, they'd be like, oh, this, this is it. We're like, yep. It is literally the smallest restaurant in Pasadena, <laughs> you know, but it's like <laughs> what we could afford. So we just leaned into the yes, this is, this is the tiny place. But what I will say where I got the idea from too, um, growing up in Texas and, you know, you do all these road trips that in Texas is so, so big and there's so many places to drive for so very long. And you get, um, you know, you pull over on a diamond shamrock and have like the most, amazing smoked meats or somebody's like side of beans that's been in their recipe that they're, you know, they're trying out. And you're just like the, air, like the beautiful air. It's just, there's something also about eating outside and having such an informal exchange. That's just, it's really touching. It's a really touching way to consume food. Um, and I was sort of starting to yearn for a more simple ex exchange, right? So my vision was not to have a big dining room with a lot of fuss. It was like, I just wanted the exchange of a really special piece of comfort food. And that's sort of where um, we got the idea to um, to get it started. Yeah, the, the kind of the proverbial roadside hamburger stand, right? The, the You know, the romance of like the hidden gem, as it were. Yes, yes. And my dad and I still to this day, I kind of got my greasy spoon palette from my dad. And we'll just go to, you know, we love to just go to any hole in the wall and he'll take me to the latest and greatest one. He lives in Navasota when I'm here and, you know, we'll just, you know, with, we kind of do it just, just him and me. So no one else can see like how much food we're actually ordering and just like get down on grits and bacon and biscuits and just all the wonderful, wonderful things. Well, and you must've been feeling pretty good about your prospects because I, I would think serving chicken sandwiches with 60 other vendors around, it's got to be pretty good if you're going to stand out in that kind of environment. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I mean, and the word spreads real fast if it's good or not good. So you, so you kind of know and gain a little bit of confidence. You're like, okay, I think, I think we, we got this here. All right. So, so, I mean, you, you kind of, you kind of yada yada the, the, the sandwich itself, but, but just talk a little <laughs> bit about about kind of how you put that together because it's 
you know, obviously you're you're selling chicken sandwiches against a lot of uh, very prominent national chains, but but yours is a little different. It is. It's a little different. And so I I don't know. I just love the the way everything happened with it. It's very organic. So literally that night I made the sandwich out of my mind. I didn't even try it first. I was like, we'll do a Thai style slaw, a little fish sauce, lime juice, canola oil, Napa cabbage, carrots, and we'll do it. And I didn't even have that. And I, what I love about just like going for something and not overthinking it is a lot of people would say fish sauce and chicken, you're crazy, you know? Um, but it works cause it's balanced correctly. And then you've got sriracha, but it's not spicy. And then the chicken, I love, you know, like there's so much love put into the chicken. Um, we brine it for 24 hours in buttermilk and enough salt as if you are going to brine a turkey. So it's a hybrid method. That's not super popular. We're taking the method of brining something in buttermilk to tenderize the meat, right? And then we're, we're taking the method of brining and we're, you know, to make it actually salty and flavorful in the flesh. And we're marrying those two um, techniques together. And then we put rosemary, fresh, you know, huge sprigs of rosemary and huge sprigs of thyme in there. And the chicken gets a lovely bath for 24 hours. Um, and then we double, you know, we double dredge it, crisp it. There's like a whole method to where it's just like this, crispy, perfect piece of chicken. If it's done right, which, you know, I would say 99% of the time is the procedures are followed <laughs> and it's done right. And it's like awesome. And then when we, uh, needed to, when we started at smart, the market, we we're like, well, we can't just sell one sandwich. We need to come up with a few different flavors of sandwiches. So I made a spicy sandwich and I was kind of keeping with, all right, we've got lime juice and fish sauce, little sriracha, Southeast Asian flavors are like so easy to make food taste good. I was like, let's just kind of continue on with the Southeast Asian flair part of it and see how it goes. And so then the spicy daddy is a combination of seven different spices, um, a couple of which are like Thai chilies, a galangal powder, which is a rhizome used in um, Thai soups. And togarashi, which is a Japanese chili. Um, and then it's got fresh ginger mayo and cilantro and a little bit of sambal. So I just love, I just really love that, the whole flavor combo. And then we, when we started in 2018, the Nashville hot chicken was really popular. And I'll be honest, I are indeed... Nashville's, but my heart just wasn't in it. And I was feeling like it was a distracting move for us because I really didn't want to be pigeonholed as Nashville hot. Um, it's just not our, our specialty, right? So we, we left it off the menu and then this is how me and my husband work. He pays attention to what customers want, which is very important when you're running a business. But then the chef and me is like, well, I just want, you know, like I want to make what I want to make and, you know, it tastes really good. So, you know, if people want to have it. They should, they should come have it. And he's like, yeah, we well, yeah, you have to give people what they actually want to I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, customers are good too. Um, and so he's like, we really want to, I need to revisit this Nashville thing and we need to roll out a Nashville sandwich. And, um, I was like, okay, I'm ready and I'm here and I'm going to do it in the way that I also, um, 
I read a lot when it comes to recipes, especially if there's a historic recipe, a classic that I'm trying to put, you know, I'm trying to make, I need to understand the source of it first. And it's actually a really funny story of how the Nashville hot sandwich came to be. Um, Legend has it that who was it? Was it Prince's? It's Prince's, yeah, in, in Nashville. Got mad at her husband for some nonsense and decided to put um, all kinds of spices on his uh, chicken. But traditionally, um, it's made with bacon, with uh, lard, spiced lard that gets smothered as a paste on top of the piece of fried chicken that melts into it. So that's kind of traditionally how it's done. Now we are in modern times. I think that's a real tough sell these days, which is why you see, you know, we have make a chili oil that it gets dipped into after it gets fried and then it gets doused in, you know, whatever level of spice you choose. So I end up making it, but it's got these slightly different elements. So it wouldn't be an exact traditional Nashville. We have four different levels of spice, or you can get it country style, which is no spice. And we make these kind of slightly spicy Texas style pickles that I freaking love. They're so delicious. Um, we make those in house and then we make a remoulade sauce because I think that the tanginess and the freshness, it's like celery, pickles, paprika, black pepper, mayo, Dijon mustard just goes really well with all of the flavors in the Nashville spices. And then, um, the coleslaw dressing, like I'm a sucker for like the KFC coleslaw that's really sweet and sugary. And so I made a sugary, sweet coleslaw dressing. So you're getting just like sour, spicy, sweet, tangy, like all the, 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 the umami and yum flavors. And so the Nashville, ironically enough, is become my favorite sandwich. Don't tell my husband. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you're, you're, your secret's safe. This okay, is, good. Yeah. Okay. And then there's the all-American daddy, which again, we're trying to pay attention to what customers want because it's hard when when customers are like, oh, can I add a pickle? And I'm like, ah, no. But I don't want to say the word no, but it's like the spicy daddy and the big daddy wouldn't taste good with pickles added. And people are like, what the heck, man? Can I add a pickle to the sandwich? I'm like, but that's why I made these two that are pickle chicken sandwiches. So the all-American right. daddy. Yeah. Right. You, can't, you can't really tell people... No, I mean, right. And like I don't if, if somebody to. if somebody wants the big daddy with a pickle on it, like, don't you kind of have to like let him do it? I mean, well, it's well because then here's what backfires though. If we don't educate the guests properly, because we are trying to do something a little bit different. Um, if we don't educate the guests properly, it's kind of like build your own pizza. You're like, or build your own sandwich. Like that place is disgusting. I'm like, well, because we let you build what you wanted, and it wasn't <laughs> very good, right? So if we put we let people put the pickles on the big daddy. So instead of saying no, it's like, oh, you like pickles on your sandwich? You're going to love. Let me, re and you redirect. Right, right, right. right. Yeah, yeah. If you, that's right. more. This is right. You can't, you can't exactly say this is our version of the Chick fil A with the pickle on it, but like, that's, you know, totally. That, because that's what people are asking for, essentially, right? They, they, they want to know like which one is the most like the, the Chick-fil-A sandwich. And we are hearing what people want and we want to give the people what the people want. So the whole menu. So those are the four main flavors of sandwiches. Um, and then there's loaded fries, which is so my personal favorite order is you can get the three, the little daddy flight, which is the three sliders. And you get to choose three of the four flavors to mix and match so you can try. It's like a perfect gateway to trying our, our food. And then I like to get the daddy's loaded fries, which is like nacho cheese and scallions and bacon and a little bit of sambal. 
Southeast Asian, you know, Indonesian chili paste. Um, and that to me is like party for your mouth. And then we also serve breakfast all day. And the reason why our breakfast tastes so delicious in my opinion is all of our eggs are cooked dirty. What do you mean? All of our eggs are cooked dirty with bacon grease. Oh yeah. That, that see, that does sound like a, that, that sounds like a good idea. It's a very, very good idea. Um, so I guess, yeah. And like this, we have a salad. I didn't know, I guess outside of Texas, fried chicken salads are kind of not a thing. And that's really sad. And the rest oh, of the they go so nicely together. They go so nicely. It's like we have crunchy romaine, baby kale, and we have this amazing cilantro lime dressing and we just, and then the fried chicken and the mint. And it's just like, hello, like fried chicken and salad is just a really good idea, but it's just not done enough. So we have to keep, we have to really spread the gospel on that. All right. So you developed this menu. You started with this little tiny space in California. Eventually, you have a an investor, a, a business partner named. Uh, oh, that's that's on me. Dave. I, yeah, Dave, Dave, Dave Linegar, the founder of Remax. Right. Right. So so tell me about kind of meeting Dave, and and growing this, like going from you know a hundred a hundred square foot to go counter to where you are today. <laughs> Yeah. So, um, so my special sauce is creating delicious food and I'm really, I I like systems and I can talk about daddies really well, whether it's on radio or TV. Um, that's kind of my special sauce and I'm kind of a good, I got good natural raw leadership skills because you kind of have to be, um, if you, if you're a chef and you're getting food out on time, tastes this way, looks this way. I didn't realize how similar it was to running a business, right? Um, at this level, like the franchise business. Um, so and then my husband's special sauce is uh, kind of consumer trends and paying attention to where people's habits are migrating and where they're going. So when we opened up, he was like, you know, he quit his job. He was working front of house, talking to customers And he was uh, basically like, you know what? We don't have this big marketing budget. Um, We're just going to be everywhere. All like on all you can, they can order directly from us digitally. We're going to be on all of the delivery apps that are completely demonized, but not if you use them the right way as a marketing tool, right? They take these egregious percentages, but then if you can convert them from a DoorDash customer to a daddy's chicken shack customer and they order from you directly and you, you know, stuff the bag with all the things and, you know, um, then it's a way for you to, you know, somewhat affordable marketing. Right. And that's really the strategy that we took. Um, COVID sort of skyrocketed our business because we were set up for the way consumers were going to consume. I think that without COVID people, it would have taken three to five years for people to adopt the online ordering, the digital technology in that way. It just sped up the behaviors and a lot of the behaviors have stuck. Order ahead, pick up, for example, right? Um, DSPs are like, I don't know. That's kind of a wild card right now and a wild ride. So I think people are getting hip to how much more they're paying for that convenience of the delivery and not doing it as much and understanding how much they're taking from restaurants and people wanting to support restaurants and order direct. So I'm not really sure what, you know, what's all happening there. 
Um, so business was, you know, we grew like 200% and it was painful and wonderful and all the things in between. Um, and then just by having natural conversations with friends about, you know, everything that was happening, we got approached by some investors and, you know, it was like, we were just learning. We're going, yeah. They're like, well, what do you, what do you want to do? And how do you want to grow and expand? And we just didn't really know those answers. Right. It was more like, we needed to partner with somebody who could, um, who had the know-how to do this, not just writing a check. Right. So we kind of had, you know, had some meetings with investors and, you know, it's also a gut feeling that you go on, um, when, in crazy times like this, you're like, okay, does this feel right? Right. How does this relationship going to be? Cause it's kind of like a marriage in a way. Um, and then we got hooked up with um, the founder of Remax, Dave Linegar, Um, and he, you know, it's real estate, right? And he was sort of one of the early pioneers in franchising. And we just fell in love with each other when, you know, he came out to meet me and Chris on our, you know, sad little, you know, little alleyway patio and planes flying above and all kinds of ambient noise. And where he was in his life is like, I want to find other service-based businesses to help franchise them um, like I did. And he found a tremendous amount of obviously success, but of like personal pleasure and going into 127 countries and franchising has such a, you know, it needs a lot of good PR around it because there's, you know, not enough, but the heart of it is really cool um, to see, um, he fit remax just celebrated their 50th year anniversary so he you know, he's like come see what that's like and these people came in with flags from all these different countries and i just like start weeping like a little baby you know i'm just like oh my gosh this is really moving and intense to know that this person has created this business system where anyone can sort of be their own entrepreneur maybe in countries where those opportunities weren't there so at the heart of it, franchising is a really, it's entrepreneurship and there's just so many neat, good American qualities about it. Um, but all that's in the news is like subway and negativity around it, which there's plenty of that as well. Right, right. Um, but, but I mean, but I mean, we could even be a little more explicit, right? Like it, it gives people the opportunity to own a business without having to like build marketing yes. and brand awareness from the yes. ground up, right? Yes. The, the, you can buy a daddy's chicken shack franchise and, and your customers, you know, once you guys kind of get to scale, like your customers will have some idea of what daddy's chicken shack is. Yep. And if they follow the playbook, they should be successful. That's it. That's what we're building, you know? And so, um, that's sort of where we started. And he was like, we need a prototype. Cause we just had this little walk-up window and it's like, just pick somewhere in the middle of the country. That's easy to fly to, um, and so I was like, well, I'm from, I'm from Houston. I'm from the Heights. And it's a great food city because six months out of the year, it's too um, unpleasant to do much outside. So we just eat and drink a lot. <laughs> That's really <laughs> cool. Um, so, and I was like, I think think that this would should be the place. And we have a family farm in Brenham that's very much reflected in the daddy's brand. And it just felt right. And it just seemed to make a lot of sense to kind of um, come home, if you will. And so um, that is what brought us to Houston. Yeah, because I, I wanted to emphasize that because I, you know, and I'm glad you mentioned that you went to HSPVA and, and that you, your mom acted at the alley because you know, I, I say that you started in California and people kind of get their 
their hackles up about, you know, don't California my Houston. But, <laughs> but I mean, you're as much a Houstonian as you are anything else. Totally. <laughs> so what's it been like for you just to be back back in Houston after however many years away? I mean, it's very nostalgic. You know, it's it's nice to it, there's so many things that are comfortable about you know, expanding this business. And there's so many things that are uncomfortable about it. And so I think of, you know, so many first times and new this and new, new challenges, right? So being at least in a comfortable city to expand in is really helpful for me. You know, there's friends I can call up or people who stop by and we can sit down for an hour and just share a meal, share a story, talk about some memories and reminisce. So I really like that. And um, you know what I will say? Um, growing up in the Heights, I couldn't believe when I came back to see what the neighborhood had become with these beautiful, um, like New Orleans style homes with the porches, the three, two and three story. I don't know that I've ever seen a more beautiful quote unquote development. Usually it's like, re like housing developments are so ugly and this is like so tasteful and so beautiful. Um, so it was just, I don't know. It's been a really neat unfolding chapter of seeing how a place evolves. Well, and, and even 10 years ago, I mean, the Heights, you know, had a handful of, of kind of notable restaurants. And now it's like a new one practically opens every, you know, couple of months. So it's just, a, it's become a very dynamic restaurant environment. Absolutely. We're right. I I can't tell you how many times while we were opening this place at you know, Laurel was where I took all my meetings. I love, love that place. Cultivare, you know, there's just some really great places. I forgot how many awesome frozen drinks there are here. Shout out to Houston for having awesome margaritas and daiquiris. Um, I think and remembering it, it's like I grew up on that. And then I left here and ordering margaritas other places was like very sad and disappointing for three years as I was like, oh, what is this thing with ice in it? I need my frozen margarita. <laughs> yeah, it's a real art form here. So so let me just ask you kind of what's the what's the response been like? Because, you know, I, you know, I try to kind of keep my my fingers on the pulse of some of these Facebook food groups. And and it seems like there's some enthusiasm and also some skepticism. Totally, totally. So this is something uh, we, what we saw when we opened our first location in Pasadena. When you open a new place, um, price seems to always be a theme. And I've talked to other um, neighboring businesses like, oh, yeah, that's kind of like when we open up newly, we get a lot of um, pr people that are uh, commenting on price. Um and we pay everybody more to work here. We pay well above minimum wage. Um, and we're also buying nicer quality ingredients and more, you know, chef driven ingredients. So we have to charge what we charge for our food at this stage to, you know, stay in business and make it work. But we also know that we have to earn the trust of people's hard earned dollars to make them want to spend that money. And I think that that's just about being totally new and building awareness so people know why and using like, you know, cornstarch cups and sauce cups so that because one of our brand pillars is sustainability and we'd like to move towards 
being as sustainable as possible. We're not like 100%. We're not perfect. But just trying to make those little changes as we scale that are really important to us that just still cost a little bit more these days. Um, so it's interesting. The price concerns have all but gone away over, you know, it's like the first few months, it's kind of loud and then they kind of go away. We did make a couple of changes to our menu because the price of chicken was completely out of control last year. So that's corrected a bit, which has been helpful. We made a couple of meal options, which um, have been doing really well. Um, so just, you know, we have this great um, feedback app called Ovation that you can get in store if you, but if you order online through our website, it automatically sends you this survey. So we can, you can give us your feedback internally and give us an opportunity to make adjustments or make it better. It's how we, you know, build a, a better business and a good business to make sure we're hitting the marks. So that was the concern initially. And then it seems to have sort of gone away for the most part. And people are pretty happy with the value of the food that, um, that they get here. And so every time I touch tables, even more and more like, Oh, it's my second time or, Oh, I come once a month or, you know, or when I'm out in the community, it's really funny. They're like, Oh, I've seen that place. And I'm like, you should come in sometime. Right, you should try it. Right. <laughs> so what's that tipping point? And I think, you know, that's what we're learning too, is in a, in a new market is like, what, how, how do you, at this day and age, when we're so inundated with information and it's so loud and chaotic with, you know, billboards and passing by and social media and influencing and radio and TV, it's just like really an, an, a stimulation overload. How do you get someone to, what's the tipping point to, to buy and come on in and say hello? Um, so it's just a, you know, it's all a learning and we're going into Scottsdale and Orlando and Denver. So we're going to have to learn how to enter all these, these new markets. But I do love, um, being in the community. We were at like Harvard, uh, elementary's super cool fundraiser party. We bring our daddy mascot. We were at the, um, the uh, Heights, uh, Houston Heights Crawfish Festival last Saturday. That was a ton of fun. And we bring daddy out, the mascot. I mean, everybody loves it, not just the kids. And it's <laughs> really fun. So I'd say the feedback um, is overall pretty good. Um, yeah, the price stuff has kind of gone away. Well, that's good. So, so then do you, do you feel like you're achieving some success in Houston? Do you aspire to additional locations? So we, uh, we do feel like we're getting traction in Houston and, um, we do have 10 more locations coming between West U and the Katy area that are in development. Um, we're looking at a building over in Montrose. I can't say which one it is right now, but I have my <laughs> fingers crossed. I'm hopeful. I think that, um, Daddies will do great in Katy. I think it'll do great in Montrose um, and as well as West U. Because really what another thing, you know, your 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 business always sells uh, maybe an emotion, right? So yes, we're selling fried chicken sandwiches. That's what we're known for, even though we have fingers and popcorn chicken and breakfast all day, all that jazz. But we're selling um, sunshine, right? 
And so you probably can't see on the podcast. It's not a visual podcast, but I got sunshine in my background and we're just really trying to spread positivity and our cashiers are called warm huggers, right? So that's the, you know, what we aspire to, to be is that, but we're also selling you, um, time back, right? Because, um, our sort of target is dual working households that maybe have kids, maybe don't have kids, but they're sort of short on time. Right. And that's where, you know, that's where my husband and I are in our lives right now. So placing an order ahead online to go reach your hand out the window to pick up is like a weight down off your shoulders. You know, you're going to get it in time. You don't have to cook and it's going to be accurate, tasty, and fresh and a little bit better in terms of quality. So I think that's a big thing that maybe we still need to tap into, um, as a message of what we're kind of, what we're offering, you know, and how we can help you. Yeah. And, and I think that's, that's an important sort of undertold aspect of your story, right? As consumers, we say we want, you know, ingredients we could feel good about and sustainable packaging and, and people to be paid a fair wage. And, and then, we as consumers have to realize that, that that means that the chicken sandwich can't cost six bucks, you know? Right. And, and I was thinking about you specifically, cause I, I went to Bex prime and picked up just a hamburger and fries and a lemonade and it's 20 bucks. And, and I think if I went to daddy's and got a chicken sandwich and the loaded fries and, and a drink, it'd be probably about the same amount of money. Right. And, and I, I, that's kind of where I see you. Mm you know, like relative to a Houston business is, is kind of like, you're the, you're the Bex prime of fried chicken sandwiches, right? A little, you, you feel a little better about it than, than the national chains. Cause you, you know, that it's, there's someone local behind it and you know that you can feel good about the ingredients they're using. And, and, you know, you hope that it, you know, achieves a, a similar level of success. Absolutely. No, I think that's spot on. I grew up with Bex prime and their milkshakes and that place is just solid. You know, but yeah, there's, it's a, it's a definitely a notch above, you know, another thing I will say there's a, there's, and I knew this is going to happen, um, confusion on the drive through windows. So we still get a fair amount of people rightfully. So who are like, wait, I can't order at the window. And a lot of big brands are going in this way, like Chipotle, um, and, you know, having these pickup lanes, Chipotle lanes is what they're called. So again, this I, is- I think Velvet Taco down the street from you is yes. doing the same thing. I love Velvet Taco. So good. <laughs> so, so good. Um, and so it's just about educating folks. I think p- people will get used to it, but I want an opportunity to say why we don't offer, you know, taking orders at the drive through. Um, so because we're fast casual, we're not fast food. We don't assemble our sandwiches ahead of time and put them under a heat lamp. Like a lot of fast food places will have ready-made sandwiches under the heat lamp, right? And they're just kind of pulling the sandwich in a bag, putting some condiments maybe on it or, you know, in the bag and scooping the fries and putting them in there. We actually, in our peak periods, we will fry some chicken ahead. So we're getting ahead of a rush time, but it's, you know, the timer's in the holding are very specific because our standards are like, it can't be in there for more than 10 minutes, et cetera, et cetera. So it's always juicy and fresh. And then we toast the buns and then we put all the lovely chefy things all over the sandwich. So if you pulled up to order that food and it took five to six minutes, 
Um, and we get busy and then you have so many cars and it's just like a bad customer experience in the end. So that's why it's order ahead only, but man, it is really beautiful. If you order online ahead and you come pick up and our goal is that we just literally greet you, give you your bag in 30 seconds. Bye-bye. That's our goal, right? Happens quite often. Yeah, no, no, that, that makes total sense. Uh, well, Pace, I'm going to say, this has been great. You know, we've run a little long, which I don't, I don't mind because I've enjoyed this conversation, but I do want to wrap things up. But before I let you go, we have to play the lightning round. Five easy questions, five short answers. Just say the first thing that comes to mind. Okay. Pace Webb, what is your favorite ingredient? Citrus. What is the first band you ever saw in concert? Duran Duran. What is your fast food guilty pleasure? It has to come from a restaurant where you can actually order at the drive-thru. Mm, Whataburger taquitos at 2 a.m. Good answer. Who is your favorite Houston sports figure, past or present? <laughs> I'm an art kid, man. Leave me alone. No. That, I, that, happens, that happens probably about one every five podcasts. Uh, and then finally, when you're ordering a pizza for the first time, or when you're ordering a pizza, what are your go-to toppings? Ooh, um, first time cheese to make sure that it's a legit place or margarita. Uh, but my go-to pizza is definitely like a ricotta white pizza. All right. Give us the website for Daddy's Chicken Shack and the social media and all that stuff. Daddy'sChickenShack.com is the website. And Facebook and Instagram are also at Daddy's Chicken Shack. Pace, thanks so much. Mwah! Bye, Houston. Bye, Eric. You can follow me on Instagram at Eric Sandler. Keep it locked on culturemap.com for all the latest Houston bar and restaurant news. Thanks so much for listening. I'll be back next week. I want my $2.